Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Thanks for tuning in. It's a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll spend some time with comedian Ronnie Chang. You know him as a senior correspondent on The Daily Show, the star of Ronnie Chang Takes Chinatown, one of the stars of Crazy Rich Asians, one of the stars of Megan, and one of the most in-demand comedians working today. Today, we'll talk about why he waited until he was in university to give stand-up comedy a try, and why he says, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm funny, despite selling out theaters across the world. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet debut author Ashley Tate. She arrives on the crime fiction scene with a bang with her new book, 27 Minutes. It's described as a twisty psychological thriller filled with dark secrets like why, on the fateful night of a car crash that killed his sister, Phoebe, did it take Grant Dean 27 minutes to call for help. As the anniversary of Phoebe's death approaches, Grant is haunted by what happened. We'll get to that in just a little while. First, though, let's meet Supinder Ratch and Enrico Colantoni, stars of the new CBC police drama Allegiance. Supinder stars as Sabrina Sohal, a star rookie police officer who must grapple with the limits of the justice system as she fights to exonerate her politician father. She serves her diverse hometown of Surrey alongside Vince Brambilla, played by Enrico Colantoni, a veteran training officer who sees her potential but doesn't always agree with her forward-thinking methods. The first season of Allegiance airs on Wednesday nights on CBC and is then available for free on CBC Gem. Supinder Rach and Enrico Colantoni joined me via Zoom to talk about the series and the twist in the first episode that kicks the whole thing off. This is my legacy. The crown is grasping at straws, trying to weave them into some kind of treason basket. Maybe you should reconsider the uniform and everything that it represents. I'd rather fight from inside it to make a change. How do I look? Like a cop. This is my legacy. The twist is that, you know, at the beginning of the episode, very quickly, um, my father, who's done very well for himself in the in the police force and, you know, is now a politician and um, he's charged with treason. And so, uh, yeah, it, it was one of the things that drew me in because I think it was fascinating to see this happening to a sick Punjabi man, not just any man, but who visibly looks very different. And for me, one of the things that I wanted to explore with Sabrina was, you know, there's this line that she has later on where she says, well, I, I worked for everything I got. Um, and for me, I questioned how much of that was true because she's entering the police force in hopes that she's going to enter, you know, in this light of her father's experience um, and, and benefit from that. And the other thing that was fascinating is, you know, as a woman of color, there's always something in the back of my mind um, for me, especially, you know, I was born in India and I moved here when I was four of, you know, do, do people who I'm interacting with see me as being different mm. um, or they do they see me as being an equal? And so for Sabrina, whose family has been here for generations, I think she just took for granted that she is equal. And then this thing happens. And, and all of a sudden, she has to face those questions because of what her father looks like and why he would have been charged with this particular crime. Um, and that, yeah, that is what drew me in. Well, it's interesting, too, because you have this character who has literally just become a police officer you know, a second before this happens. 
and uh, then has to figure out an allegiance. And that's what the, the title of the show refers to. This is um, way more complex, I think, than we would typically see from, uh, you know, a, a, a good versus evil kind of cop show. This is something that that digs down into uh, the very sort of nature of what it means to be uh, in a country who, even though you've been there for generations, that you still perhaps, when one thing happens, can feel like an outsider again so quickly. Yeah, I think there's there's that. And then there's also this beautiful relationship between her and Vince, mm -hmm. who is the last person that she would want to be her training officer. But it's also sort of this strange father figure when she's in a place where she cannot have access to her own father as she enters this world. And Enrico, Vince is your character. Uh, you are a veteran training officer, someone that's been on the force for a very long time. Tell me a little bit about what I need to know about Vince to understand him. He's, uh, he's um, well, Vince is tired. He's um, three months from retiring after a 25-year career. Uh, and so he's a little jaded. He wants to get on with his life. He has, he wants to spend time with his family. And so everything is geared toward, I'm getting out. I'm just biding my time until Sabrina shows up and reignites his passion for policing because of not only her 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 wide-eyed idealism, but her incredible skill to connect with people. And so it becomes it becomes it becomes that story, you know, between the two of them and their the debates they have in the car. Well, you know, just about the state of the world versus the reality versus the emotional reality of how we feel about things. And I'm an older white guy. She's a woman of color. And it's just like, well, what, what, what are you saying? We need to defund the police. What are we what are we talking about that? You're listening to Supinder Ratch and Enrico Colantoni on The Richard Krause Show. Their new show, Allegiance, is available on CBC and CBC Gem. And so we we do deal with those those subjects head on in a without hitting it over the head. You know what I mean? It's just like it's beautiful. And Supinder will will tell you this. We sometimes we had way too much fun for our own good. It's just like sometimes <laughs> there were days where we were sure they're going to pay us. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the check clears, it's a hit. We've trained a dozen rooks. We'll miss the hell out. Can we say I have a few months left? I want to see this one through. I want you to focus on the tradition you're carrying on. That's our legacy. It's a good time to be you. I worked for what I got. People are going to come at you whatever way they can. Out there, no baggage. Out there, you're not you. You're this. You were shooting in Surrey, BC. Tell me about actually being there and shooting. Apparently, we had the best fall into winter season they've ever seen in like the last hundred years. It was like sun sunny. It didn't start raining consistently until December. But other than that, I thought it was... And as a, you know, Rico's not just playing a veteran cop. I would, some would argue that he might be even be a veteran actor. So for somebody who's been, you know, lucky enough to work as long as Rico has, he said something when we were shooting that I, not, not only did my jaw drop, but the entire crew, he said, this is the first time I've ever shot in the rain. <laughs> that could possibly be true. Richard, between LA, between New York, between Toronto. If it rains, it rains and it passes. They have to keep going. 
They don't know yes. if it's going to stop in a in an hour or twenty eight days. Right. They just keep going, and it's just like God. But maybe it'll pass, and it never did. It never did. Full twenty four hours. It is like they just kept going. It was like it was like a, a medieval scene of storming the castle. They just <laughs> carrying flags, carrying equipment. It was incredible. And of course, that was the day that Soups and I had to chase a guy down. Yeah, of course, that was our outdoor, big outdoor chasing scene. Of course. You always do love scenes on the first day for whatever reason. Uh, Yeah, and it always rains when you have to be outside all day. So those are the the two immutable rules of making a, a television show or a movie. I, I will add in terms of shooting in Surrey, um, the, the thing that's really special about the show is that not only did we shoot in Surrey, but we shot in Surrey because it takes place in Surrey. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people from Surrey who are watching the show, you'll you'll recognize the the library. You'll you'll re- recognize lo- local places that we are. Um, and the talent that we had on this show, you know, aside from us. <laughs> but honestly, the the guest stars that we had, even the people who were just coming in for a day, the the background performers, there was an investment in this show because it was about their city. Um, that I, I haven't experienced that in that way before. Because if it is shot in Surrey, it'll play for another city. And this is cool because it's we're in Surrey. Tell me a little bit about starting on a new show like this. You have both been on shows uh, that have run for a long time, multiple episodes. Tell me a little bit about starting on a show and creating the character. And I guess you're learning every day when you go in or how much work goes into uh, pre-production before you actually start so you know where you're at on the first day of, of production. I think for me, like I remember when we started sort of, um, which is the the CBC show that I did previously and showing up the first day and, and those scripts. And it was just a bit like, what is the tone? Mm-hmm. Um, tone is always a, a difficult thing to know until, you know, you get there and you know what you're doing, but you're never really sure what the other people are going to do um, and find. And um, I think what was really special about Rico and I, and I, and I remember we had this from the first day when we auditioned together is that, you know, there's, there's a, I'm going to say on my part, I don't know if Rico likes me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) There was a, we had this beautiful chemistry from the beginning. And so even though the subject matter we were dealing with was quite heavy, um, a lot of the times, I think that there is a lightness to the show in that, you know, there's, there's humor in it. Mm -hmm. And I remember Rico, you saying this about, because you've worked with Mark and Stephanie before on Flashpoint. Um, and you were saying that they they understood your humor a little bit better, and 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 we also we found that with each other. Yeah, and and, and to and to add to that, the first couple of days finding that humor was always the it was the that 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 was the exploration part. How far, how much fun could we have? Right. How much you know do we where where does the relationship actually start? Because I I love this young woman so much and working with her has been such a great, great event in my life. But you start there, you really forget that these two people don't know each other. other. They're still trying to get to know each other. And so we we did yeah. blah, 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 blah. Well, and and there is a power imbalance. And there's a power imbalance. Yeah. There's a power imbalance as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, and so often we would say, "No, that that's soups and Rico." Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's not we had to bring it back. Early on, we had to bring it back and reel it in. It's just like, okay, all right, we found a groove. We found our groove, though. It was good. 
Constable Sowell, you did some good work today. Thank you, Corporal Brambella. Are you ready to discover the high-octane excitement of post-incident paperwork? Hold me back. Hoorah. Enrico, uh, your brother is a retired police officer, a uh, retired Toronto police officer. Yeah. He sort of guided you through the character in Flashpoint a little bit, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Uh, what what did you have to learn? What do, Is it uh, the way that you walk? Is, it the, is there something about playing a, a, a police officer that that requires something that that I wouldn't necessarily think of straight off the he- top of my head. I think what I mean, I'm going to talk about Flashpoint for just a second. We had one day with the actual ETF. Right. And the cast, there were like four or five of us from the cast that were reenacting for them. It was their day of um, of practice. I don't know what else to call it. But we played we played the victims or the the perpetrators and they did whatever they did. And so when it was my turn, it was it was incredibly intimidating to see a unit, um, the, the militarized version of policing, and how they they moved as one unit, mm. and you never actually saw the person speaking to you. He was behind them, but he had this calm voice. He had this voice that was just reassuring. It was like your friend had come, and you just it was just so disarming to feel that to feel this presence in the middle of this intimidation. And that's when I, that's when I learned about, you know, what these negotiators actually do. Mm-hmm. That's what Supinder's character does on the show. She just has a natural ability to connect to these people. Um, Vince, not so much, but I, but I did bring that knowing that, that every police officer, whoever wore a uniform really comes from a place of care. They not, they did, and you don't get that. You don't, because you get the, well, we can't do that. Well, back off. You know, you get that face, the mask. Right. But what goes behind every one of them in real life is a care. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing the job. And Sabrina, Sabrina Soho, she just leads with that, which makes her character so extraordinary. And so, and so, and, and that's why she, you know, she tends to be just out of the box incredible right as a rookie well we see that on the first episode this gives nothing and i will give nothing away but we we see an example of that on the first episode and it kind of nicely sets up the character in a very difficult situation with someone who is not the nicest guy uh and and the way that sabrina deals with him is is really kind of interesting to watch we coming for you and everyone like you we ain't got people near damn police force Superintendent, tell me a little bit about whatever training you might have done in advance. Did you consult with police or is it just on the page? Well, I would say a a lot of that is that building relationship, those conversations um, that was on the page. I think that the consulting that I did and I, you know, and and I did really try to find sick Punjabi female RCMP officers to talk to, to understand their particular um, experience being um, in that organization. And then we, we also had a little bit of training in terms of the technicalities of it. But I'll say in terms of just as an actor, you know, in Sabrina's heart and trying to to reach the person across from her, um, I think that that sometimes, you know, a lot of it is just like where your own heart is, you know, like for me, this was my first time playing a lead 
on a show. You're listening to Supinder Ratch and Enrico Colantoni on The Richard Krause Show. Their new show, Allegiance, is available on CBC and CBC Gem. And so I think that the the elements of Sabrina in terms of, you know, this this excitement, this energy of, you know, you've got a little bit of something to prove, um, but you've also been working up your entire life to this moment. And I think that um, personally, you know, I, two years ago, I lost my father and a year ago I had a son. And so a, a lot of my lived experience in terms of just understanding that, you know, loss and birth mm-hmm. so, so quickly within one another and kind of those bigger questions of, you know, why are we here if it's, if it's not for each other? A, a lot of those things that I was questioning in my own life, I, I tried to bring into Sabrina's heart. What is she doing? Marcy, I'm going to see what's going on. You're going to stay in the car. Marcy, Whatever this is, it isn't good. Marcy, can you hear me? It's still pain. Constable Sohal, do you see a crime being committed? Get back in the... Miss Morace! Miss Morace, what's the problem? She's in trouble. Who? Who is? Marcy, she's down. She's on the floor. I am currently binge watching all of NYPD Blue. Speaking of of great cop shows, my wife and I have have like been seven watching hours it. Of seven, seven years. Oh, of, of. It, oh, it's unbelievable how many episodes. There's two hundred and some odd episodes. We're about halfway through. You're on NYPD Blue. I, Andy Sipowitz is the greatest television character, maybe of all time. But I just I have to ask you. Tell me a little bit about if there's any story you can remember about being there, because I am. Uh, knee deep into these things right now, and I can't get enough. Uh, well, just the, the the grace of being in the presence of uh, Dennis Franz and Peter Boyle. Yeah, yeah. Getting to play Peter's son and being in a scene with Peter, and they had they had completely different style. Like, because I was right out of uh, the drama school. It was like my first role right out of the drama school and so i'm looking at these two these two you know champions of what i want to do and dennis is just so laid back and just relaxed and just like you know you know but that it was the second season he was just so comfortable in his own skin and peter because he was a guest star he was just like wrapped with like what are we doing what's what's going on it's like he would have dialogues with the director it's just like ah and it was just like wow these two greats are just like two different styles. And just to be able to be off camera with Peter and give him something, just like give him, just have a, 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 the director, the director whispered in my ear, L.A.D. Keene was directing that episode, just whispered in my ear, just give him something a little more. And I did, it was, it was, in, it was on his coverage. And I just went a little further than I would have done on my coverage. And he looked at me, this old man who's been around forever. He goes, hey, thanks for that. Wow. He's like, are you kidding me? You're Peter f- Boyle, man. This is like, he was still such a kid. He's still just so genuine. Oh, I'd miss that man. He was incredible. And that was all before the Everybody Loves Raymond stuff. But mm-hmm. Peter, Peter was just. Oh, well, was- I, I love just that idea that it never leaves you. This this idea that you want to do a great job and you want to give it your all. And, you know, I remember being on a show with Dan Aykroyd one time. I was hosting a thing and he came up and, of course, just 
absolutely devastates everyone. He's so funny. It's so great. And we walk off stage and he was like, was that okay? Was that all right? Was that that funny? And I'm like, well, go ask the audience who are literally standing up and applauding right now. But he he really cared about everything. And it's such a great feeling. And it's so cool to see that. Well, congratulations on Allegiance. Did I say enough about this young woman? Did I? Did I, did I, I think, I, yeah, I, I think, they heard, just, just I think we got the gist of it. <laughs> congratulations. Nice to see you. Rico, nice to see you again. We'll see you soon, I hope. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for having us, Richard. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye. That was Supinder Ratch and Enrico Colantoni on The Richard Krause Show. Their new show, Allegiance, is available on CBC and CBC Gem. Let's meet author Ashley Tate. Her debut novel, 27 Minutes, was 10 years in the making and is described as a twisty psychological thriller filled with dark secrets like why, on the fateful night of a car crash that killed his sister Phoebe, did it take Grant Dean 27 minutes to call for help? As the anniversary of Phoebe's death approaches, Grant is haunted by what happened. Ashley Tate, join me via Zoom. From what I understand, this is your debut novel in stores, but it's not the first one that you've written. So walk me through the process to get to the point that we're sitting here today. Okay, um, you're right. It's definitely not the first book I've ever written. I think it's my third. And um, it, it isn't even the one that got me an agent. My second book got me an agent. And then that book did not get bought by publishers. So I wrote a third book um, that got me an agent. And then that, no, sorry, I'm, I'm confusing myself. It's been a bit of a journey. Um, <laughs> I rewrote the second book and that's what's coming out. That's what came out yesterday in Canada. So tell me about the resilience that it takes to sit down, write these books that you quite clearly believe in while you're writing them. You're not writing something that you don't believe in uh, and you get an agent and it's really exciting. And then it doesn't quite happen, but you bounce back and you go back and you start writing another one, which by the way, is getting tremendous reviews and it looks like it's going to be a huge bestseller. So, uh, you know, it all worked out well in the end, but resilience has to be the key to that, right? Absolutely. And I have to be honest, when um, I got the agent, got, you know, they were submitting to editors and nothing happened. It was, it was crushing. And I really thought about giving up, you know, I'd written a couple books, nothing was happening. Do I really want to keep putting myself through this rejection? And a big reason why I kept going was because of my kids. And I didn't want to show them that I was giving up. That's not what I would say to them. I would say, keep going. And that's what I did. So I kind of, you know, had a little cry, picked myself up, rewrote something I felt really passionate about. And now it's coming out. And I mean, resilience, you have to have it and you have to have it because my story is not unique. Had you always wanted to be a writer? It's a funny, it's a funny question. Um, I think because I grew up in the 80s and 90s and being a writer was so foreign. We didn't see what they looked like or hear what, you know, we just, it just felt like this impossible thing. So although as a kid, I loved writing and I'd always done things that involved writing, it never really occurred to me that I could be a writer um, until much later in life. And what was it that convinced you that you could do it? 
Well, for my career, I was a writer, a professional writer, but more an editorial writer. And then um, when I stopped doing that, I said, you know what? The only thing on my bucket list is to write a book. So if I'm going to tick that off, I have to actually do it. But it felt impossible. I mean, how do you come up with an idea, sit down and write 80,000 words? It it felt so daunting. But I did it. And um, yeah, so it's a funny, it's a funny question because I've always loved writing, but it never really occurred to me that it was possible. Now you say that you struggle with ideas mm-hmm. and that the kernel of this idea was hatched 10 years ago, then maybe half written, put on the shelf, whatever, whatever it is that happened with it. But then you, you revisited it because of grief and trying to figure out a way to process your own grief. So tell me about the original idea and then kind of the machinations of how it became 27 minutes, the book that is on bookshelves right now. Well, um, as it's funny as a writer, I don't know if it's funny, but as a writer, ideas are really hard for me. I find the writing easy and ideas hard, but if I get an idea, it kind of lives with me for years. And this idea, and I don't want to give too much away, but it was from a movie. And I think if I tell you the movie, it might give too much away, but it was like a horror movie 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And I watched this movie and it just kind of blew my mind. And so I had this idea sitting in the back of my head. You're listening to Ashley Tate on The Richard Krause Show. Her novel, 27 Minutes, is available now wherever fine books are sold. But as you said, it wasn't until my mom died, and she died in 2018 in a kind of really awful way with pancreatic cancer, which is just terrible. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of changed me. It really, I felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. My whole kind of worldview shifted. She was so healthy. This isn't supposed to happen, those kinds of things. So it was that, that I was so grief stricken. And as a writer, I find it very cathartic um, to write. And it was like, okay, I have this great idea. I have this kind of catalyst of my mother dying. Let's finally try. Because up until this point, I had been kind of insecure in my voice and I just said, you know what, just go for it. And actually, it was actually also another piece was I have this brilliant uh, writing partner, Ashley Audrain, who I know you've had on. And she said to me, we were out for dinner and she said, you know, Ashley, this is such a time of change for you. Write something that you've always wanted to write and go for it. And that's what I did. But it was really those pieces that I needed for this book. Well, you didn't make it easy on yourself because it's told in uh, alternating perspectives by the people who were affected by the sort of the event. A car accident happens. Uh, one of the characters waits 27 minutes before calling the police, and it could have saved a life had he uh, perhaps uh, called earlier. But 10 years passes, and there's some things that happen. So it's told in alternating perspectives. Uh, there are two timelines. How do you wrap your head around that? Well, this was absolutely done through many, many, many revisions. Mm. Um, I don't do the sticky note thing. And I, I, I don't have the best memory for detail. So it is a lot of kind of dealing with the story in chunks. Mm. I would often kind of just focus on one character. As you said, it's told from the perspectives of four characters. 
So I would just maybe work on one character for a week and then another character for a week and kind of do it in chronological order that way. Um, but yeah, it was absolutely through many revisions that it got to this point. Interesting that you spend a week or so at a time with each of the characters writing from their perspective. When you have said in another interview that I saw with you uh, that you didn't really like the character of Becca particularly. <laughs> and so it's interesting the idea of a writer creating someone, creating a character that lives on the page as a major character in the book, but you don't like them. So tell me about spending that week with Becca. It was probably the worst week of the four. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that all my characters are flawed. Uh, certainly. I mean, it's a book about grief and how that can affect you. And it's not positive, I would say. So I have empathy for Becca. Um, but I know I, I don't like her. But that's fine. I can write a character that I don't like. And in fact, it was really interesting to me because one of my editors liked her the most. So I thought, you know what, that's great. That's great. Well, I, I thought about actors who always tell me, that you don't judge a character because if you're playing a, a really evil person, that person doesn't necessarily know that they're tremendously evil or that they're flawed in the ways that they're flawed. So I guess it's slightly different when you're creating a character and the character has to serve a purpose and maybe, you know, maybe just maybe uh, you don't like her so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's okay. Like you said, I, I, I don't judge her. I don't particularly care for her but i don't want anything bad to happen to her i think all my characters deserve closure there won't be a sequel a becca no. alone sequel no. no that was ashley tate on the richard kraus show find her book 27 minutes wherever you buy fine books comedian ronnie chang first fell in love with stand-up comedy when he was six years old but he waited 20 years to step on a stage Today, I'll speak to the senior correspondent on The Daily Show, the star of Ronnie Cheng Takes Chinatown, one of the stars of Crazy Rich Asians and the recent blockbuster Megan, and of course, one of the most in-demand stand-up comedians out there about why he waited so long to give stand-up comedy a try and why he says, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm funny despite selling out theaters across the world. Ronnie Cheng joined me via Zoom from New York City. At four years old, we're going back here a little ways, at four years old, you watched Seinfeld and told your mom that you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. What was it about that show, I guess it was the interstitials of Jerry doing stand-up, that made you want to do comedy? It looked like a lot of fun. And mm. it was, I didn't know that could have been, I, I didn't even know that was a job until I saw him doing it. I didn't know that was an, a job or an art form or, um, but just, just something about it that when it, it, it looked like something I wanted to do. But mind you, I, I after I said that, I, I really didn't do anything about it for like 20 years. So, <laughs> well, so it's not like I, it's not like I jumped on stage, you know, next week or anything. Um, yeah, so um, it's, uh, I, yeah, I can't explain it. It was just something that it looked like I, I want. As soon as I saw it, I knew I wanted to try it. Well, it took 20 years. Uh, in your final year at the University of Melbourne in Australia, you finally got up on stage. What was the impetus to get you on stage? And do you remember any of the jokes that you told? Yeah, I just knew uh, that was probably the last chance I would get to do this 
uh, college competition because it was my final year of university. And um, not only do I remember the jokes, I have video of it. Oh, wow. That and will remain it, <laughs> it will, it will remain hidden forever. <laughs> so I guess that means it probably didn't go that well? Actually, I won that competition. Wow. So uh, it went really well. And then that was what um, made me want to do stand-up um, uh, outside of university. Because at that time, university was very much my world. Um, and I just wanted to try it in a a more public, almost less safe environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you were studying law and finance. So I guess that was something that you were, I mean, did you think you would become a lawyer at, at some point and then comedy kind of swept you away or or exactly what happened there? Um, yeah, I thought I was going to go become a lawyer because, well, actually, I thought I was going to go become a um, management consultant mm. uh, because I actually had the job offered to me. And um, I just, um, uh, I, I just felt like I had a chance to do stand up. And if I didn't do it, then I wouldn't get a chance to do it. I'll never get around to doing it. Mm -hmm. If I if I entered the, the kind of corporate world. But and I kind of knew that like, if I did stand up, and it didn't work out, I could always join the corporate world later on. So I was just lucky to be able to have that opportunity to decide and and also i mean uh it wasn't like uh the job offers were they weren't like knocking the door down to hire me you know i was so it, it, it kind of was almost the path of least resistance to do stand-up in your specials you have talked about uh your parents and expectations that they had uh on you what did your parents think of the decision to do comedy uh, I don't know because I never told them. I just, <laughs> I just went to go do it, and then by the time they found out, it was kind of too late. Right. Um, yeah, I never had a sit down moment because even me myself, I never had a sit down moment with myself. I was just, um, I was just kind of doing it while um, at that time I was doing stand up while getting qualified as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So. I was doing both things at the same time. So in my head, I was kind of like, I was still hedging my bets at that time. So I never felt like I was totally committing one way or the other. So I just never told them. You're listening to Ronnie Chang on The Richard Krause Show. It's interesting to hear you say that because you told NPR uh, a year or so ago that you're still trying to figure out if I am funny. That's yeah. the quote. Now, surely you're joking about that. Um, first of all, uh, wait to do your research and, um, you found some, yeah, you, you really dug deeper and, um, no, I, I think it's a constant search for the next joke, mm -hmm. right? Like, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, all, all the great comics I know were always looking for the next joke. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, um. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's hard to describe unless you do comedy, but you almost have to think that you're not very good to keep finding the next joke. Otherwise, you kind of would never write the next joke in a way. 
um so yeah and and you know when when comics watch other comics that's kind of how we feel we we'll always uh, all the great comics are always in awe of other great comics so whenever i watch other comedians i'm always like damn these jokes are great you know this guy's great this 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 this, this woman's great um uh, i need to get better that's kind of how i feel about it well a lot of your stand-up is based on experiences uh, that you've had. So what does it take for something to trigger uh, uh, the idea for a joke? Or is it just something that organically you just know? Could yeah, I wish I knew because then I could kind of manufacture it, reverse <laughs> engineer it if I knew exactly the formula. But uh, usually if something's like pissing me off really mm -hmm. badly, I kind of know that there's a bit here somewhere so so usually anger is a good indication um i write a lot on stage as well so i kind of need the stage time to, to 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 write jokes so um if even if i have a premise in order to develop a joke i kind of have to go on stage and something about being on stage just helps me creatively figure out the puzzle some which is something i i kind of have less success sitting at a desk mm -hmm. kind of writing out um but it's, yeah it's just uh, it's just kind of going out to live your life man that's just how i always did comedy i have to go and go out and live life a little bit just to get some um uh, inspiration is that why you do four or five shows a night are you working out material and just trying yeah. things yeah 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 for sure i mean that's the joy of um that's the dream, right? To be able to do stand-up comedy <laughs> multiple yeah. times a night is the dream. It's the dream to do stand-up comedy in New York City. Um, to be able to run from show to show is where the joy actually is. That was Ronnie Chang on The Richard Krause Show. Find him on The Daily Show or at a comedy club or theater near you. Check him out. He's really funny. A big thanks to Ronnie for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Supinder Ratch and Enrico Colantoni for coming by. Check out their new CBC police drama, Allegiance, on CBC and on CBC Gem. Also, a big thanks to Ashley Tate. Her new thriller novel, 27 Minutes, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Check out the book that Ashley Adrain, New York Times bestselling author called Poignant and Pacey, an unforgettable portrait of grief and the darkest ties that bind. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>